0: Welcome to The Sword and the Trial. The Sword and the Trial is a podcast of Founders Ministries. and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. We're glad to have you with us today. I'm Tom Askell. And
1: I'm Graham Gundinger.
0: And we are happy to uh, talk to you about a couple of things that are coming up in Founders Ministries that you need to know about. Um, Most significantly, at least, what is looming over the next few weeks is the National Founders Conference, which will be here in Southwest Florida, January the 20th through the 23rd. Third, encourage you to register now if you've not already done so. We've got Bodie Balcom and Tom Buck and Conrad and Bayway, James Coates, and Travis Allen, who will be here preaching on militant and triumphant, the doctrine of the church. And along with that, in conjunction with it, right before the conference, Vodi Balcom will be teaching our next course in the Institute of Public Theology. If you're not familiar with that, let me encourage you to go to the instituteofpublictheology.org website and you can find out about it. You do need to register for that course. You can audit the course, but uh, everyone who takes the course, whether as a full-time student or an auditor, needs to register for it and apply for it as well so uh uh, fill in an application for the iopt school and you can do all of that online and that's now open so encourage you to go there Uh, we're delighted to have today uh, dr tom nettles who is one of the founding faculty members of the Institute of Public Theology, along with myself and Vodi Balkum, And we're happy to announce that we've just added Conrad M. Bayway as an adjunct professor. And Conrad will be teaching a course on preaching in February of 2022. Uh, he will have a course one week uh, apart from Mark Coppinger, who'll be teaching a course on philosophy. So if you're not familiar with the Institute of Public Theology, let me encourage you to get online, learn about that. And also we have a special opportunity donors right now. If you uh, are in a position to contribute to IOPT, we have a matching fund that's been set up from now to the end of the year, and anything that you give for this institute to carry on its mission will be doubled over the next several weeks. We have another um, opportunity for those that want to join the fam. Is that right?
1: Yeah, speaking of IOPT...
0: We got these snazzy mugs,
1: limited edition Institute of Public Theology mugs. You might be confused uh, with Aggie fans,
0: which is a, not a bad thing to yeah. be confused with. Well,
1: um, but you can get one of these mugs if you join as a fan member in the month of November, either at the Sword or the Shield or the Ally level. So, if you want to get one of these mugs that cannot be gotten anywhere else, that's right. You can't buy them from They're the, the store. Not for sale. Not for not any for price. Sale. <laughs> <laughs> Except for your fan membership.
0: That's right. Well, uh, Dr. Tom Nettles is no stranger to those who watch The Sword and the Trowel or familiar with Founders Ministries. He's one of the original founders of Founders Ministries, longtime friend. And we're delighted to have you back on this podcast, Dr. Nettles. Thank you for giving us your time today.
2: Oh, thank you. It's always a delight to be on this podcast. It's so valuable and has so many good, rich, substantial interviews and information. So I'm very happy to be a part of it. Thank you.
0: Well, it's our joy to have you with us. And uh, Tom was scheduled to teach a class on church history, part one of church history back in the fall of 2021. And uh, your wife got sick. And so you were scaling back and caring for her. But just give us a brief update on how Margaret is doing now.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, She had had some compromised uh, physical realities that began Right at the second week of June or so, and then she had a fall and was—I wasn't there. She was on the shower floor for 15 hours. That was a pretty bad experience. She began to recover from that, but then we both got COVID, and her COVID took her into a very deep, Mm. uh, deeply, uh, deeply affected her in every uh, way—physically, mentally, energy Mm. level—and so we've spent uh, several weeks gradually moving out of that. The Lord has been. Uh, gracious, as as Paul told the Philippians, he said, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit, I shall be released. And then we feel like that's exactly what Mm. has happened through the prayers of God's people and the internal operations of the holy spirit she her health has basically returned a hundred percent uh she still gets uh, tired more easily she hadn't resumed her three miles a day walking yet <laughs> neither uh, am i <laughs> neither have i <laughs> so, and uh <clears throat> but she's doing everything around the house mm. and uh tires a little more easily than she did but we expect that to uh be remedied also Wonderful. and so we're very thankful oh. for her, her recovery well, to this to this
0: point. Praise God. You know, I was uh, in a doctor's office recently, and they were wanting me to come up with some goals as to what I wanted to do. And I, I really, you know, I didn't have any goals. And so I said, well, you need to have a goal. And, and so I said, okay, I want to run a marathon. And so the, the lady taking the intakes, oh, that's great. That's, that's a great goal. So how far do you run now? I said, I don't.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: You've got a long way to go. <laughs>
0: but I said, I also want to be a concert pianist. So, uh, you know, we'll see. So if you can get to work on that for me. <laughs> how effective they are. But, uh, yeah, well, Tom, it's great to have you here uh, with us. And, you know, man, and uh, God has used you in so many wonderful ways over the course of your ministry as a professor of history, as a churchman, a preacher of the gospel, a mentor of students and friends, and just uh, I don't know. We couldn't we could not begin to calculate all the way an
2: example of what it means to bumble one one's way through life <laughs>
0: well hardly if that's so then let me bumble you know okay. i would love to bumble but uh you you've written books you've taught courses you, you have uh served churches and uh, we just appreciate the stewardship of God's grace and gifts in your life. And this is coming out just right after Reformation Day in 2021. And so we want to talk a little bit about the Reformation. But before we get to that, just tell us about what a life given. To the study of history and God's story, God's history. What has that meant to you? And what has that done for you? How do you how do you evaluate that as you kind of reflect on your life, giving so much of your time and energies to thinking about God's way throughout history?
2: Yeah, boy, that's a really good question. And it's uh, it's the kind of thing that I think every Christian should weigh and should pay some attention to. Uh the most important thing, of course, I always tell my classes, the most important thing that you can do is learn how to interpret the Word of God, mm-hmm. is to be faithful to the Word of God, realize that it is His revelation, and that uh, everything that we need to know and everything that's going to confront the philosophy of the world is going to be found in the Word of God. So we need to know that. Then we need to be able to synthesize the Word of God into all of its major themes, because in that way we will begin to interpret the Word of God more and more profoundly. And so I think systematic theology is, a, is the second sort of leg of, uh, of a healthy Christian life. And third, I think, is history, because uh, uh, everything that has happened is <laughs> is historical.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and so the more we learn about history, the more we learn about what has happened, the more we learn about what people think, the more we engage the way the text of Scripture has actually uh, influenced people's lives and influenced movements. The more we engage that, the more we see the confessions of faith and their importance and their historical a setting, and so we can just sort of access the entire fabric of truth through the study of, of history, and it will make our interpretation of Scripture, I think, more informed and profound. It will make our grasp of systematic theology, seeing the way that it has developed historically, uh, have a, a deeper appreciation for that, and make our ability, I think, to critique certain elements of confessions and systematic presentations a a more a helpful uh, skill. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I look at it as sort of the third level, a third leg perhaps on a stool, uh, but nevertheless a very important one that makes the other two uh, stand with uh, a, a greater uh, stability. Mm-hmm. Uh, persons, you, you encounter persons in the history of the, I, I hope that we can just learn to look at these persons we encounter in the history of the church as our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, what a, what a way to consider someone like Polycarp, who's willing to be burned after he's 86 years mm. old for the purpose of Christ, to realize he's our brother, and, to, mm. and and Blandina, the slave girl who was beaten to death by bulls in the <laughs> arena in France, that she's a sister in Christ, and she was willing to, to die and, and suffer rather than deny Christ, and to Look at someone like uh, Anselm, um, exiled from his ministry uh, because of convictions he had, but nevertheless writing and, and profound understanding of the reason for the incarnation and of the nature of the of the of the atonement. Uh, and just looking at all these different persons, uh, knowing that this is a long train of individuals that have been saved by God's grace. <laughs> that have endured in spite of opposition. And if we ever begin to sort of flag in our confidence that God is with the church and that with all the problems we have, wondering if we will survive, if evangelical Christianity can even uh, stand the, the kind of depravity that <laughs> that the Word of God has to deal with in all of us people that are called by grace and we begin to look at history, we realize, yeah, God can sustain mm-hmm. us. God will sustain us. God is after His own glory in this, and uh, uh, we're simply the, the fuzzy yarn on the outside of a great big ball of yarn that <laughs> has got so many things and coils within it that mm-hmm. support us. That uh, we should have confidence that there's uh, that His grace will continue to to operate in profound ways and mm-hmm. in very life-giving ways.
0: So, Tom, would you say that uh, studying history makes you more optimistic about the future? It does.
2: Is- it does make me more optimistic. It makes me realistic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, realists can be both optimists and pessimists. Yeah, uh, you have to be. As long as as long as long we're honest and, and realistic, we, we we know that people fall away. <clears throat> we know that that sometimes the world can be more appealing to us than Christ. And we see that in the New Testament and we see it. Uh, in history. And so we recognize that what the Bible says about those things and the representations it gives of those who, fa- who fell away are really true, and it mm-hmm. will continue to happen. But we also know that our life is hid with Christ in God, and who a Christ who is our life uh, appears, then we shall also appear with him in glory, that he sustains us, and that he who began the good work in us will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we become more optimistic. Someone asked me, one time I was doing an interview about the Reformation. They say, well, do we still need the Reformation? And, and of course, if we look at the Reformation from the standpoint of its recovery of of biblical doctrine and the authority of Scripture, I would say, yes, we are absolutely dependent upon the Reformation and what God did in that every day of our lives and for our church life and for our evangelism and for our biblical interpretation. If people still need to be justified by by faith through the completed work of Christ, we need the doctrines of the Reformation. If people still need to get their knowledge of God out of uh, Scripture with full confidence that it is a book of revealed truth, then, then we need the, the Reformation. If people still need to know that uh, they are secure uh, in Christ, and that nothing can separate them from the love of God, then we still need the truths that come to us from the Reformation. So the Reformation is more than just uh, a historical event that came out of the lives of several individuals that we can locate. It is it is a recovery of eternal truth upon which the e- eternal uh, destinies of sinners uh, depend, and that in which these truths, in which God has vested our perception of His glory in this world. So, yeah, we need the the Reformation uh, every day of our lives and every day of our our church lives.
0: Mm. Yeah. So, thinking about the the Reformation, you know, we again we've just passed the October thirty first here, twenty twenty one. Graham, do you have a favorite reformer from the sixteenth century?
1: Uh, Menno Simmons. Really? <laughs> no, I, I only say that because I grew up Mennonite. Okay, uh, all right, <laughs> there you go.
0: So you...
2: Well, I, I have on my, my shelf over there the works of uh, the complete writings of, of Menno Simmons. I started to bring that down as a book to sort of <laughs> hold up. I agree. I think Menno Simons was, a, was an outstanding person. There are certain theological ideas that he had that we have, right. I, I hope, sort of bypassed, but his courage and his insight into the Nature of liberty of conscience, the nature of a believer's church, that mm-hmm. had a tremendous impact on the founding of Baptist life. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think is irreplaceable. God used him in a way to recover truths uh, that the reformers simply had resisted, and he suffered, and he was he was persecuted by other people that we we really still respect. I mean, the Dutch Orthodox and the Senate of Dort and the Belgian Confession of Faith. We. Respect that, and we love that, but uh, it missed some insights mm. that Menno Simons had, and repressed the Mennonites over those peculiar insights. Mm-hmm. So I would agree. Yeah, we, we need Menno Simons also. We we've left behind his doctrine of celestial flesh. I think we've left behind his sort of the way he he sort of collapses sanctification with justification, and perhaps some other issues. But there were insights that he had that we that that completed certain aspects of of biblical ecclesiology that the reformer simply had had missed
0: yeah hmm. so tom uh who would be your favorite reformer if you had to limit yourself to one <laughs> i know that's an impossible question but i'd love to watch you str- wow. struggle with it
2: well i mean who can who can ever bypass <laughs> luther Mm -hmm. I mean, the Reformation matured a lot after Luther, but the thing that is amazing about Luther is how much ground he covered um, in his life from from where he began as thinking that uh, entering the Augustinian cloister was his key to salvation. Mm -hmm. And then just through, without having any writings before him except the writings of Augustine, that were helpful to him. I and mean, he did, he knew the, the, the medieval writings very, very well, but Augustine was the biggest influence on him. But he went beyond Augustine in some of his things in a good way. Uh, and uh, the opposition that he had to put up with, the uh, complete tradition of the church, the conciliar history of the church, the, the authority that was granted to the pope, the threats that were upon his life. Uh, all of these things, just standing alone, this single man, here I stand, I can do no other. Who cannot admire Luther? Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just, uh, there, we, we, I think I would say that there would have been a Reformation without Luther, but in fact, there was not a Reformation mm-hmm. without Luther. Luther was the man that God brought forth. I was just reading through today his, uh, his speech that he gave before the Diet of Worms, when he had, uh, can I read just a part of that? Because this is, yeah, uh, vicious. he's an Augustinian monk, he's a nothing, he's a nobody, <laughs> and he is being confronted by the most powerful persons in the whole empire, uh, and <clears throat> they are asking him to recant his writings, and he is, he's, he's telling them that he is willing to do that if they can demonstrate from scripture uh, that that they are wrong, just let's listen to this, and Here he is, is this monk, he's still got his Augustinian garb on, he's come from the cloister, he's had a night to think about this, because it was, they had asked him the day before to renounce, and he said, I need time, I need more time, so they gave him another evening, and so he came back, he says, um, my serene lord, emperor, most illustrious princes, most gracious lords, notice how polite Hmm. he still is to them, I beseech you to grant a gracious hearing to my plea, which I trust will be a plea of justice and truth. And if through my inexperience I neglect to give to any of their proper titles or in any way offend against the etiquette of the court in my manner or behavior, be kind enough to forgive me, I beg, since I am a man who has spent his life not in courts but in the cells of a monastery, a man who can say of himself only this, that to this day I have thought and written in simplicity of heart, Solely with a view to the glory of God and the pure instruction of Christ's faithful people, then they uh, ask him. They they ask him, "Are all these books yours? Are you willing to renounce them?" He says, uh, "Your imperial majesty and your lordships, I ask you to observe that my books are not all of the same kind." There are some in which I have dealt with piety and faith and morals with such simplicity and so agreeably with the Gospels that my adversaries themselves are compelled to admit them useful, harmless, and clearly worth reading by a Christian. Even the bull, harsh and cruel though it is, makes some of my books harmless, though it condemns them also by judgment downright must- monstrous. And if I should be begin to recant here, what I beseech you would I be doing but condemning alone among mortals, that truth which is admitted by friends and foes alike in an unaided struggle against universal consent. And then he speaks about those that are leveled against the papacy and the doctrines of the papists, and he defends that. Uh, And then they go on and they ask him again to renounce these books. Uh, And he says, uh, stop me if you think I'm going too long. No, this This is is great. uh, Yeah, he says, He says, however, since I am a man and not God, I cannot provide my writings with any other defense than that which my Lord Jesus Christ provided for his teaching. When he had been interrogated concerning his teaching before Annas and had received a buffet from a servant, he said, from a servant, he said, if I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. If the Lord himself, who knew that he could not err, did not refuse to listen to witness against his teachings, even from a worthless slave, how much more ought I, scum that I am, capable of naught but error, to seek and to wait for any who may wish to bear witness against my teaching? And so, through the mercy of God, I ask your imperial majesty and your illustrious lordships, or any one of any degree, to defeat them by the writings of the prophets or by the gospels. For I shall be most ready if I be better instructed to recant any error, and I shall be the first in casting my writings into the fire. Thereupon the, the orator of the empire in a tone of upbraiding said that this answer was not to the point. There should be no calling into question of matters on which condemnations and decisions had before been passed by the church and by councils. He was asked for a plain reply without subtlety or sophistry. To this question, was he prepared to recant or not? He says, your imperial majesty and your lordships demand a simple answer. Here it is, plain and unvarnished. Unless I am convicted of error by the testimony of scripture, or since I put no trust in the unsupported authority of pope or councils, since it is plain that they have often erred and often contradicted themselves by manifest reason. I stand convicted by the scriptures to which I have appealed, and my conscience is taken captive by God's word. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to act against our conscience is neither safe for us nor open to us. On this I take my stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now, so, uh, you know, deal with transubstantiation, deal with his fights with, uh, with Zwingli, uh, his uh, lack of insight con- concerning some of the, the, the peasants and things like that. Deal, deal with that. Don't, don't cancel him. Don't cast him under the bus. Look, look at this man and what he did and who he stood up against and what he recovered and from whence he came to recover all of those things. And just celebrate him as a gift of God to the church. So, I mean, who, who couldn't look at Luther and say, yeah, if we hadn't had that moment, then no telling what would have happened. Mm. Would we have had Reformation theology at all?
0: Tom, I was just thinking about that and the people who would want to cancel Luther and a host of others on whose shoulders yeah. we stand because they were imperfect men, which, again, history, it seems to me can help us to evaluate uh, movements, eras, and people in the light of biblical realism and recognizing that the best of men are men at best and we don't have to approve of everything they said or did in order to benefit from them. And yet, man, it just seems to be today a, a, a kind of common cause to just go about canceling everybody in history who ever said anything wrong, did anything wrong, or didn't do it in the way that we think it should be done today. So... What do you say to people today who are always wanting to cancel folks in uh, that, that we've looked to and learned from historically because they have blemishes?
2: Yeah, well, that's a, it is a complex question because we never want to condone the obvious errors of generations in the past, but. Right. It should teach us that we should be humble about this. And we recognize Mm -hmm. that probably generations in the future are going to look at some of the stupid things we say and do and want to cancel us. And so we need to recognize that the only thing that is that is worth uh, defending is is those those insights that people have that can that are proven to be true by the word of God that are uh, genuine, true extrapolations from the word of God about the nature of humanity, the nature of God. And whatever benefit comes to us from them, we're willing to embrace, and we're willing to uh, embrace the people that God used to do that. That does not mean that we uh, reject the idea that they could have made uh, errors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes Mm -hmm. we need to recognize, though, that our evaluation of their errors is more harsh and perhaps has as many errors in it as their supposed errors do, Mm -hmm. because often we take... worldly evaluations and worldly philosophies as our standard of measure in uh, looking at the supposed errors of others. So we need to be very careful that our standard of measurement when we are judging others' errors is a valid standard of measurement. I think that would reduce the number of, of errors that we attribute to others. But given the fact that others did make errors, we still need to look at their, their contributions and ask, is there another person that could have done that for us, that could have bequeathed that advance in understanding or that particular skill to us? Uh, I don't know what the background of Jonas Salk was or, or what kind of personal life he had, but when I think of Jonas Salk, I think that we hardly even ever see a case of polio today. And it used to be something that was frightening when I was seven, eight, and nine years old. Every year we wondered who was going to get polio. Mm. We don't even think about that anymore. So so did Jonas Salk, was he a sinner? Did he probably have errors? Uh, yeah. Do we want to cancel him and say whatever he bequeathed to us is something we shouldn't have? Absolutely not. Mm. And so if we look at someone like Broadus and say, well, Broadus was a slave owner, and we want to say, therefore, we can't benefit from him. Well, if we look at his defenses of slavery, and we can criticize that and think that there are some points on which he was simply wrong in his understanding. Uh, Nevertheless, uh, however we would evaluate his exegesis and however we would evaluate how he dealt with all those passages, we need to look at the fact that he was a person who was seeking to build theological education. He saw the value of it. He was a person who loved preaching and loved exegetical preaching, and he set forth standards that still... Are resonant with uh, preaching text today. Mm. So what we want to do without Broadus and his book on the preparation and delivery of sermons, or without his the standard that he set for for careful exegesis in his commentary on Matthew? No, God God used him in ways that we should still recognize as a gift of God. Do we want to do without Boss and his founding of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and his views of a freestanding theological institution uh, and all the benefits that it has been through the years, uh, admittedly, uh, they become sometimes seed beds for people who simply want a, uh, a, a, a living where they're, they're, they're publicly uh, uh, congratulated for their scholarship, and yet they're unfaithful to the task that has happened within the seminaries. But there is something of a self-correction that happens also, and there is much good that has come, and there is much beneficial uh, scholarship that has been done, and there is much courageous work that has been done through the seminaries. Would we want to just throw aside uh, the reality of the the theory of theological education that J.P. Boyce presented in his three changes in theological institutions, do away with boss and therefore do away with the entire, basically the entire history of theological education in Southern Baptist life. Of course not. Mm. So short-sighted, so, uh, so picky <clears> unish, <throat> and, and so unaware of the, and ungrateful for the dependence we have on God's providence and God's gifts and the lives of, of other people. I just think that we have to be very careful about that. And the Bible has already told us that we're all sinners and, And Paul, even in his uh, capacity as an apostle, in the way he delivered, what he knew was revealed truth, and that he did not do anything that was outside the parameters of revealed truth in his delivery and in his preaching and his presentation of the gospel nevertheless recognized that there might have been some things about his delivery or about his his personality or about things like that that people didn't like. And he says, I do not justify myself on this account. I I That won't happen until the Lord judges. So he recognized that there might have been things about him that could be criticized. But nevertheless, what he said and what he did, he had every confidence that it was the revelation of God and that no one Should veer from it. So, if the Apostle Paul can recognize that there are yet things that might come to light in the day of judgment that have to do with his personality or with the way he treated people, or perhaps even with some aspects of his delivery of the message that can be judged by Christ, then how much more should we expect that to be true of everyone who has existed in the history of the church? We need to learn historically, and this is one of the advantages, I think, of history, to look at what life was like before them, what they added to the, the edifying content that we have, and therefore what life was like, and what exegesis was like, and what theological thinking was like uh, after them. And, and I think that we'll have a much more balanced uh, and appreciative understanding of those who've, who've gone before us.
0: Yeah, you know, it's uh... Fits in with C.S. Lewis's uh, chronological snobbery that we must always yeah. be guarding against. And, you know, Graham, you're in the midst of theological studies. You've done several years worth already. Uh, but I'm interested in your take, you know, as a, a young man who has uh, been in the ministry for several years, but has, God willing, many, many years ahead of you. What, what do you do to fight against chronological snobbery?
1: Um, well, just listening to you speak about it, Dr. Nettles, you know, it seems that the it seems pious to look at figures from the past and condemn them for their great sins. Um, but what it is, is it's arrogance. Mm. Um, it's arrogance to say, you know, I'm not guilty of those sins and I'm righteous enough to see the sins that these great men didn't see themselves. Um, yeah, that's a good point. And, and I think, and I think that one of the remedies, I mean, of course, the remedy to that is sanctification by the spirit, but one of the things that he uses in us to, um, combat that arrogant, self-righteous spirit is a study of history. Mm-hmm. Um, to to be able to to not my generation, and maybe not my generation, but people my age, we are idealists. I mean, you talk about realism, pessimism, all that. Uh, we're we're idealists, um, but with a healthy study of of history, you're able to overcome some of that idealism. Mm-hmm. You want to stay stand strong on your principles. Uh, But you want the reality of God's providential working in history to control those those principles. Um, Amen. Good. And so I'm
2: I'm I'm encouraged by this new generation
1: already from your (laughs) side. Go on. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, so I think I think that that's, that's one of the big things is actually the, the actual study of history and not in a cursory way, because the cursory understanding of history is how we've gotten into this place where yeah. we're looking at people from the past and we're condemning them um, for these things. And we should condemn sinful things.
0: Yeah, well, it, this whole idea coming back to idealism and realism, uh, that's been something probably the last two or three years that has dawned on me more and more. And I was reminded when I first... Since God calling me into pastoral ministry, you know, it was I was really in kind of an awkward spot for a variety of reasons but uh in my idealistic sense of what i wanted to be i just kept saying you know man i just want to be a part of a real new testament church you know if i could just be a part of a real new testament church and i don't have to be pastor if i could be the janitor that'd be enough for me you know and then i read the new testament and I thought, whoa I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be a part of the church at corinth you know yeah. <laughs> i don't want to be in the odyssey which, which one of those do you want to be a
1: part of <laughs> i know <laughs> you mean you want to be a part of a glorified church? that's right you know that
0: was it and i do think that that kind of idealism gets shattered. If you just read the Bible with both eyes open, but then you see how God has worked through imperfect people in building the new Testament church for 2000 years. And even before that in the old Testament era, and it does, it just grounds you. It kind of helps level things out that can seem almost insurmountable in the moment. And uh, history has had a tremendous uh, benefit in my life, that. And even, I think that goes with age too, Tom, wouldn't you say that, you know, you just live through things and, and you see fresh stuff happen. You think, well, okay, this isn't my first uh, time dealing with these types of issues and God's remained faithful through them. So it's uh, it's something that we expect yeah. more readily.
2: I had a, <clears throat> there was a friend over at our house last night that you know very well also. He's pastor of a church here in, in Louisville and does other things, but he was talking about some of the young men that are part of his congregation, and they have this kind of idealism, which is great to -hmm. to have it, that you just described. And so they're upset that he is not more uh, nervous and upset about the same things they're upset about. Uh, And so he he tries to talk to them and say, well, I, I agree that those are the kinds of things we need to correct. But There is just something that happens in experience, and he says, I I hope it's not just becoming complacent, but there are certain things you realize rise and fall very rapidly, and it's not that you can just go and put out every fire immediately when it comes up. It's just got to be the steady preaching and teaching of the Word of God that begins to bring people along, that solves some of the issues that appear to be absolutely urgent at the time, that eventually just... Just die down because of the life in the body and because of the regular preaching of the word of God. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we shouldn't mm. uh, confront a significant error where we see it, that we uh, should not try to realize that there are certain implications that come up when there are uh, destructive tendencies that arise within the church. We need to do that, but we don't just get nervous about everything and think that somehow uh that god has forsaken his church and that his word does not have power anymore to solve these difficulties if we simply are faithful to it
0: yeah amen amen well that's a good word it's a good word for us to end on and uh tom we thank you so much for coming and joining us today and appreciate so much your life and ministry uh i mean i'm no, speaking for Graham and myself, we both have been impacted by you. I've known you longer, and so I've had opportunity to learn more from you. But uh, we appreciate the stewardship of your gifts and in, in writing and teaching and always bringing us back to the Word of God. And uh, God bless you. Please give Margaret our love, too. We appreciate you being with us today. Thank
2: you. Thank you. a privilege to be with you all. It really is. Thank you.